Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week this week. The business of sports hockey basketball playoffs are over, basically, a merciful summer before they get back into it. Any more important than that, this is the 100th show uh, since the beginning of Keeping Score. Hard to believe. Uh, so many issues, so little time. Dan Colarusso, the global editor, digital for Reuters, and Amy Tenery, our sports guru. Did I get that right, guys? How's that sound? That sounds great to me. I, I didn't realize I had bumped Amy up to guru, but um, I, I think she gets a raise with that somewhere. So I'm happy about Ooh, it. I want that in writing. <laughs> Listen, you're senior guru. She's junior guru. As it relates to raise or economic adjustment, that's up to you guys. How's that? Sounds good. So, hey, Rick, I wanted to, to kick off today. We read a story, came across a story on ESPN.com about a group of politicians, Cory Booker among them, trying to squeeze sports franchises from not using muni, muni bonds and muni funding to build arenas, stadiums, and the like, and venues. Amy, you had some thoughts on this. I'm kind of in the middle. I go back and forth on it. But you and Rick, I think, have fairly divergent opinions. So we'll give you the first crack at that one. Sure thing. I mean, I think, you know, this is just inevitable at this point. There's so many municipalities that have seen, you know, they've, they've built up these stadiums and then just seen the teams leave town. I think at this point, there have been so many academic studies that show that these stadiums don't actually generate the kind of economic activity that the teams claim they do. I think if I'm a team owner at this point, I need to start taking a different tactic other than claiming that there's going to be riches coming to whatever city helps me build a stadium. I need to start selling my team as a cultural institution, something that maybe can't be measured or quantified in, in, in dollars and cents, but that you can say, hey, this this team is a, a part of this city's identity and you need to invest in it. Rick, your take on that? Yeah. I will tell you this, you know, I've been in this business for seemingly 150 years, and a lot of it was cutting my teeth in the backs of this whole public-private partnership stuff. What Amy says is actually really clairvoyant to the way this stuff needs to be done in the future. One of the reasons why the mayors, U.S. Conference of Mayors and otherwise, have such trouble articulating what the studies say is because they're selling hope, they're selling vision, they're selling the generational obligation to kind of retool infrastructure, they're selling quality of life in a city, and that doesn't show up in a study. Absolutely. It's one of the main reasons why all of these stadium deals that have been successfully done are done, not because the numbers say the economics justify these studies and the studies are right. It's also because it's a key to starting urban development, to making people feel good for themselves, about themselves, to relocate industries because they'll give their people something to do. But it's not the be-all and end-all. And you're absolutely right, Amy. Anybody who argues the numbers justify it, it's not only that. It's everything about it. Right. I think Seattle's a great example. You know, the sword of Damocles hanging over a city because your, your basketball team's going to leave, and the Sonics left. And I don't think Seattle, as a community, has suffered very much. I think Amazon has more than picked up the slack with Microsoft. But anyway, what else do we got, Rick, this week? What, what else are you looking at? Yeah, you know, good stuff on the public-private partnership, but here's a good example. We got a new arena being done in, in, uh, in, in, in Golden State for the Warriors. They're moving from Oakland. But guess what? They're doing their part. 
they win in five. A lot of people said they're going to win in four. And now all the press all over, now that they're in the top five in franchise values, they built a brand. Should we regret the fact that the NBA has allowed Kevin Durant to go and, and distance themselves from the rest of the league? Or should we embrace the fact that these guys did it by the rules and now we have a legitimate dynasty, which is maybe the biggest dynasty since the old Celtics? What does everybody think? But can they keep it together, Amy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now they've got, you know, three big ones locked in for next season, Durant, Thompson, and Green. And even beyond that, I mean, Durant's only locked in for 2017, 2018. You've got some big question marks going into next season. The biggest one of all is Steph Curry. He's, you know, he's a free agent this summer. I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in your perspective, Rick. I mean, when you're looking at kind of the, the key players in the Warriors, who do you think is the most likely to defect? You know, there's a lot of camaraderie post-championship, but, you know, which players are going to start looking for greener pastures in terms of contracts? Hard to break it up. The real key is if this brand brings more endorsements to these guys as members of this world-class team, I don't think any one of those big three is going to leave because it jeopardizes the dynasty ring, and, and it's it's kind of hard to do in an environment where everybody looks like they're much better than everybody else. So, you know, what's the next level? Is it Iguodala? Is it, uh, is it uh, a couple of the younger guys? But they've got a great brand internationally, and I think everybody there is going to be loyal to that. Is the dynasty in basketball what one Super Bowl is in football? Um, hard, to, uh, hard to compare the Patriots with the Warriors because the Warriors really haven't started that yet. It's harder to keep the teams together because of the salary cap in football. They're, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Do they keep them together over time? I don't know. Well, okay. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about personal brands, though. It's hard to compare anyone to the Patriots. Let's be <laughs> honest. <laughs> well, the thing is, to a personal brand, like, is one championship enough to stand out in NBA where LeBron has a handful of rings? Curry has a handful of rings now. Durant's going to probably get another one in the next couple of years. Like it's an interesting, from a personal marketing point of view, it's kind of just interesting to, to knock around uh, what makes basketball different, but just because uh, of the clout and the, the way the league is broken up right now uh, into a lot of haves and have-nots. Hey, here's the deal. We're going to go to the next topic, but before we do, let's make a bond to convene at the same time next year and talk about the Warriors dynasty, and if they don't win next year, then there's no dynasty talk. How's that? Uh, that's a deal. That's a deal. Okay, I have a deal. I have a deal from Rick's show notes this week, because, you know, Rick sends us things to think and say. Uh, the listeners don't know that, but Rick tells us exactly what to do for this whole show. But he mentioned that they're considering surfing. Is it for the Tokyo Olympics? I think it's already a done deal for the Tokyo Olympics, isn't it? The surfing, on an experimental basis, it would be in L.A. Tokyo is going to be pretty hard. So let's assume L.A. gets the Olympics, and we'll, just, we'll, ha we'll know that for sure in the next four or five months. So, yeah, do we think that we ought to have surfing in the Olympics or not? I am decidedly a no vote. I wow. do not believe in surfing is the skateboarding of California. I, I, I'm, I'm not feeling the surfers. Amy? I mean, I, gosh, I, I feel kind of betrayed. You think you know someone, and then <laughs> they're anti-fun at the Olympics. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you one more. I know it's your 100th episode, Rick, but just to stick it to you, I'm not only going to say yay to surfing, I'm going to say let's get rid of golf from the Summer Olympics. Wow. Yeah. Good. Well, we're going to continue to isolate you, and, and now I know why I don't spend a lot of time with you, okay? I mean, that, that's an obvious answer. And as far as Colorado, I am very disappointed. 
you know, you think after, as you said, 100 episodes, you know somebody, but it just demonstrates how out of touch he is in that ivory tower he calls the Reuters, uh, uh, what, a 15th floor, whatever it is up there. Admittedly, it is far from the beach, but you have to break the tie, Rick. You have to break the tie here. Well, Absolutely surfing. Okay. And we have uh, Kia-sponsored do-rags that everybody's going to be wearing when they are surfing. It, what a sponsorship opportunity, by the way, a sponsorship Sponsored surfboards, sponsored bathing suits, and sponsored headwear. I hadn't thought of that. You're absolutely right. You know, give me your sense. Now let's segue into what everybody's going to hear. I think it's it's a treat. I, I love the way it was put together. You know, we've had so many interviews in our 100 episodes, and we picked out some of the best of. So what do you particularly like? Well, I, there are a couple I like. I love John McCain talking about the phony patriotism of professional sports when they, uh, I forget which, was it the NFL? Yeah, we know there's a few of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the NFL had yeah. kind of uh, beaten the federal government out of some money to, had, to uh, wear camouflage. They conveniently forgotten to mention that yes. uh, all of these honoring the veterans were getting paid for yes. by the armed forces. By the armed forces, <laughs> right, exactly. So I thought McCain was particularly right. strong. It was an honor to, to take basically 15 minutes and talk sports with him. That was at a NASCAR race in Arizona. He let his hair down, not let, not much left. And he let his hair down and talked about a lot of different things. And glad you liked that one. You know, one of my favorites was Gary Player, who was my first guest. And he's been a friend for a long time. And he is outspoken and opinionated about a lot of things. But just the fact that he's in his mid-80s and he's still, eight, well, excuse me, 80th birthday. And he talks about everything in golf, social justice, life, Nelson Mandela, and of all the interviews, I think not only was he the first, but he may have been the best. Rob Manfred, uh, the commissioner of baseball, Mike Wan, the commissioner of golf, they all have some different perspectives. And hopefully the listeners will really appreciate our take of some of the best of, in 30-second sound bites, the 100 interviews we did for our 100th anniversary show. One hundred episodes of Reuters keeping score with Rick Horo, the sports professor. Here's a little bit of our best. Let's get started. Rob Manfred, MLB commissioner. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I was going to be commissioner of baseball when I went to work for MLB in 1998, and probably didn't even think that ten years later. It was really not my goal. Um, when I went to work for baseball, I was focused on improving what had been a, a really sorry state of labor relations, and that was really my goal. Um, I mean, I think at one point in history, uh, it was common for leagues to take outsiders, outside yeah. lawyers, whatever. Um, I see the current generation of commissioners a little bit different. Adam, myself, Roger, yeah. all came up through the ranks. Gary Player golf legend. Uh, Rick, we uh, are in our element here at St. Andrews, the home of golf. I mean, for people that have never seen this place, uh, it's so extraordinary. The atmosphere of this wonderful little town, this world-class international university, a golf course that has stood the test of time and all the great champions of the world have participated on it. The RNA and here playing the oldest of all the major championships. What an experience and what an atmosphere. And we're all waiting for the bell to bong. Gary Bettman, NHL commissioner. And the trending is that franchise values are higher than they've ever been. You know, when, when people focus on our game, 
When you look at it in Canada, uh, there's nothing comparable, I think, for any sport anywhere in the world to the relationship that our Canadian fans have to our game. And it's almost breathtaking to see that level of connection. And while we have great fans throughout the world and great fans, avid fans, I think more avid than any other sport in the United States, the fact is our fan base isn't as large as a percentage of the population in the U.S. as it is in Canada, but the fan base is growing. It's growing day by day. Stephen Ross, owner, Miami Dolphins. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I took a path, I mean, starting with nothing and, you know, t- try to figure out how do you succeed in life. And, uh, you know, as a kid, it was always my dream to own a football team. And, uh, you know, uh, until that dream, you know, was somewhat realizable, you know, I didn't think a lot about it. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, with success and as I got older and, uh, you know, and uh, having the opportunity to, to buy a team and being able to afford it, you know, it, it was a very exciting moment. Um, I always saw the benefits of owning a team, uh, you know, far were far greater than just owning the team itself. I mean, it's like how I grew my business. You want to be able to connect the dots, and uh, and I always saw the opportunity of owning a football team opens up a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of doors. John McCain, U.S. Senator. So uh, it is, but with that kind of role that professional sports plays, they also have some obligations. And that's why it was so disturbing uh, a couple of months ago when we found out that the Department of Defense was paying money for so-called patriotic events, honoring the men and women who were serving flags, etc. And I want to make it clear, there's a difference between, for example, here at NASCAR, uh, the National Guard sponsored a car, pays for it, that's fine. That's a recruiting tool. But that's far different from saying we're honoring all of our veterans at halftime and here's the flag and aren't we great, we the franchise, aren't we wonderful, we're honoring when they're actually getting money for it. That, that was a bit of a black eye, uh, especially for the NFL. Marissa Thalberg, Taco Bell CMO. One thing that's incredibly important to note is you see a lot of marketers who make it their, the, the strategy in and of itself is to be in the Super Bowl and they and their agency partners spend the better part of a year saying, what are we going to do for the Super Bowl? And that was not at all the math or the strategy that we were practicing. What happened was we were working on what we knew from all test results and all indications to be a very, very significant impending launch and um, something with a lot of complexity to bring to the marketplace. It took the better part of three years to figure out actually how to deliver this innovation. And as a result, when we finally got to the point where it was ready to roll, we looked at the timing and realized it was going to be the beginning of February and said, wow, that, co- that coincides with the Super Bowl. And that seemed like a little bit of a kiss of fate and, uh, you know, kind of meant to be. Steve Pagliuca, owner, Boston Celtics. I think it's all, it's all of the above. And really what you've seen, if you look at the major driver of the increase in value in sports, it's the fact that people can get entertainment in any way they want it right now. And the traditional model of, you know, we grew up, when I grew up, uh, three, three channels and commercials, yeah. that's been all turned on its head with TiVo, with on-demand, with the Internet, with clips. 
And, and so what's happened is sports in general, and the NBA, I, I think, in particular, have been a hot commodity because people really want to see it live. Secondly, in today's sports, you know, the NBA is a non-contact sport and a, and a fantastic game where the fans and television get really close to that game. It's a great television game. It's a great game to be in stadium. And so it re has really captured the conscience. I think, I think David Stern was a, a genius, you know, in building the league. And Adam Silver has been there for many, many years. And, and he's also a genius. So we've been blessed, I think, to have two of the best commissioners that I've ever, ever seen in sports. David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent. It's not sufficiently regulated. And while everyone's complaining about too much government regulation, I'm not suggesting the government regulated. The, the players' unions are supposed to regulate it. It's way too easy to get into. They don't discipline the people for blatantly violating the rules. We have a conflict of interest rule, which prohibits agents from representing management people. So, for example, when Michael Jordan became an owner of the Wizards, I, I had like a Spanish-style, Spanish Inquisition, uh, you know, thousand-page report, you know what, I own a piece of the Wizards in the Cayman Islands or in the Isle of Man. I said, no, there's a rule, I'm honoring the rule. Very few people honor the rule. And so you have situations where some of these large agencies represent players on the team, managers on the team, general managers, coaches, and sometimes do the naming rights for the team. Now, that's a blatant conflict. Now, I'm not angry about that from a competitive standpoint because I'm not trying to sign a lot of players. But I think that the one unassailable fact is that in sports like football and basketball, where you have a salary-capped environment and the owners and the players share the revenues in a fixed percentage relationship. Basketball is 50-50. The only way the players are going to make more money is to make the business better and grow the pie. And when you have these kinds of conflicts, all they do is retard the growth of the business. Shane Battier, NBA champion. Everybody has their own path. All right, there's no right way or wrong wrong way to, to to complete your journey. You know, for me, I wasn't good enough to go mm. to the pros early, but I enjoyed college. I enjoyed yeah. being a college senior. I enjoyed being a, a, a man on campus and, and learning. Um, every situation is different, and I'm not I'm not going to begrudge anyone for for achieving their dreams, reaching their dreams. But you know, it was such an amazing team atmosphere. There there was a true love and a true care for for each other, and you know, you, you have to have talent to win big, but talent alone doesn't win you big. You have to have culture, you have to have love, you have to have caring, and a shared responsibility and sacrifice. And that's what was special about those Miami Heat teams. Eli Wolf, Sports for Positive Change activist. It's really this global movement of sport as the power of sport, sport as a vehicle for social change. It's, it's really taking off globally. I mean, you're seeing thousands of organizations around the world really recognizing the role that sport has and the power that it has. I mean, you're, you're seeing grassroots organizations, you're seeing professional organizations, you're seeing athletes. And so you're really seeing this movement. And, and really, when you look back and seeing one of the pioneers or kind of a catalyst for this movement of seeing the power of sport, you can really look to Muhammad Ali, you can look to like the Billie Jean Kings and Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I mean, there's some athletes historically, but Muhammad Ali has really been one of those, if not the one who is, you can really point to, to say he was the inspiration. And he's been the one that has really left this legacy of what sport means in our world. 
Patrick McEnroe, tennis legend. You know, tennis is by far the most equal when it comes to professional sports in paying men and women. At the same time, uh, there are, you know, tournaments that are just on the ATP tour, which is a men's tour, are more, uh, you know, better sponsored and have better attendance overall than women's only tournaments on the WTA tour. So there's always that balance of finding that right mark. Um, but I think tennis has it. It's not perfect, but it's as close to being uh, as equal and as equitable as any other professional sport out there. There's no doubt about that. Scott Blackman, CEO of the United States Olympic Committee. We have limited resources, as I said earlier. We can't support everybody. What we try to do is make sure that the dollars that we do invest uh, really have an impact on our ability to win medals at the Olympic and the and the Paralympic Games. So when we look at a sport like basketball, there, there's not a lot that we can do to make our men's basketball team better. It's a, it's a fantastic team. They're well coached. They're well trained. Uh, there are other sports where we've got an opportunity to win a medal. So you look at a sport like swimming or rowing or gymnastics where they don't have that same level of infrastructure and, and training that a men's basketball might. So the way we look at it is where, where can our dollars have the greatest impact? Uh, as you probably know, we don't invest in sports where we really don't have a reasonable opportunity uh, to medal. So that's always the analysis that uh, Alan Ashley, who leads our sport group, undertakes to, to, to determine how we allocate our resources. Jay Perry, COO, WNBA. Basketball has become so, I think, played, respected. I think there's a lot of interest in it in our country right now. And when we look at what our 12 female athletes did on the court in Rio, I mean, to me, it's just an amazing level of play. Um, obviously, they are fiercely competitive, but they've got the goods to back it up. Right? There's just nobody better in the world than them. And we've got fans around the country that can come and watch these superstars play, see them up close and personal. It's great family entertainment. So um, we think it's a recipe for success for the WNBA for sure. Mike Wan, LPGA commissioner. Well, uh, there's a lot of similarities between tennis and golf, meaning that they both become pretty global. Players come from all over the world. They play all over the world. The major difference between us and the WTA is we've made a real commitment to make America, North America, our home. We play 65% of the time here. Our players from all over the world move here. We're based here. So when you talk to a player from Korea or Japan or Singapore, Australia, Taiwan, Thailand, they've generally moved here to America to commit to playing on the LPGA. Now, we will travel all over the world. We'll televise all over the world, but uh, we're a little different. We don't, this is where we consider home. This is where we play. That's why adding events like Indianapolis are so key. We've had a huge increase in our schedule over the last five or six years, but overwhelmingly the biggest increase in that schedule have been North American events. Neil Pilsen. TV executive. I think it's cyclical. Uh, certainly their image right now with a succession of problems, concussions, spousal abuse, uh, taking a knee. Uh, frankly, I don't think those of those situations have had much effect on TV ratings. What has affected the ratings is kind of a general downturn in the quality of the games and the fact that a lot of the marquee teams that have generated ratings over the last 20 or 30 years for the NFL, these teams are simply not performing. And, and what you do is you end up with uh, individual matchups on Thursday, Sunday night, and Monday that are 
less than compelling. The NFL is finally beginning to experience the problem of diluting its Sunday afternoon with individual games on Thursday, Sunday, and Monday nights. Chris Granger, President, Sacramento Kings. Hopefully we've done some interesting things from a sustainability standpoint that other teams um, mimic and try to follow. As proud as we are of Golden One Center from a tech standpoint, from a food standpoint, from a sustainability or design standpoint, we understand that we're not going to be the only ones to be lead platinum, and we're not going to be the only ones to have an amazingly connected arena, and, and hopefully other teams can pick our brains and we can share our learnings with others. So. Hopefully, we're a model for others in that regard. And then, again, obviously, on the basketball court, our mission is to, you know, first and foremost, to create a winning franchise that enhances the lives of those it touches and makes the world a better place. And it starts to create a winning franchise. So I suspect we're going to continue to make aggressive moves to turn the team around and, and be competing for a playoff spot in the very near future. Peter O'Reilly, SVP Events. NFL. Yeah, draft Pro Bowl, combine, kickoff, working very closely on the international game, especially as we went to Mexico this year, and then uh, all of our uh, all of our big owners meetings. But really, Super Bowl, draft, combine, kickoff, uh, Pro Bowl. So a good a good run of uh, big moments throughout the year. For a Super Bowl like this one, where it's really a three-year planning cycle, where you you lay the foundation early, you really get the, the core elements, where's the center of gravity, you know what you have in a stadium, you really get those elements set, and then as you come into that last year and those last six months, you really try to determine how do you each year try to take it to a next level, and that for us is certainly the game is huge, and that's you know major focus, major focus both from a security standpoint, a you know significant driver on the on the revenue side, and that's the showcase. But it's really about the week long experience. How do you create access for that fan who may not have a chance to be in the stadium? How do you bring that together? How do you create a hub of activity that really creates a real soul around the Super Bowl? So. All of those things come into it, and to your point, Rick, it's about managing the risk, making sure we're being smart operationally, not taking on too much risk, but also each year pushing the envelope and making sure we're doing things that are worthy of the Super Bowl stage and and make people say, wow. Val Ackerman, Commissioner, Big East Conference. But I'm kind of with you. I think the rest of women's basketball has to figure out a way to you know, make this a, a yeah. bit more interesting. We saw some new teams in the Final Four last year, and that was a real positive. But the margin of victory between UConn and, and everybody else is, is a bit high. And, and you don't see what you see in men's college basketball, which is those Cinderella stories and the possibilities for smaller schools to make it into the Final Four, win a national championship. That's a much more remote possibility, if not an impossibility right now in women's college basketball. I, I would say it's not as level as it is on the men's side. Um, part of that is because in women's college basketball, uh, 15 scholarships are allowed. In men, it's only 13. So those extra spots yeah, on the bench, sure. if they were kind of spread around a little bit, might be might be helpful. Um, but again, you know, what's been sort of created and maintained at UConn is very, very special. And it's going to take, I think, something, um, something really, uh, you know, special to kind of knock them down. Matt O'Toole. President Reebok. 
Well, it's a it's a pretty multi-dimensional oh, landscape, as right. you just mentioned, because you're you're dealing in different cultures around the world. You're dealing with different business models around the world. We've got markets where we're a pure play retailer selling direct to the consumer, and we've got markets where we're more wholesale driven. But in the end, it's really about understanding and really focusing on who your consumer is and what they're really looking for out there. And uh, I'm not someone who wants to spend a lot of time, and I coach my people not to spend a lot of time on what the competition is doing, but just to make sure that we're really in touch with what our consumer is thinking and what really is their interests and how we can really surprise and delight them. And I think that's, that's kind of simple formula, but in fact, it's actually what you need to do. Chris Collinsworth, sports broadcaster. I was completely blown away by the fact that now at the Combine, there are all these 25 to 35-year-old young people that have never played football, that have never worn a helmet, many of whom are women, that are now having real decision-making influence over game plans, over rosters, over salary cap, and it's all about data, it's all about analytics, it's all about these young kids that are coming out of places like MIT and Harvard and yeah. Princeton that are not afraid of the numbers. And those were just some of our highlights in this celebratory edition, our 100th episode of Keeping Score with Rick Hora, the sports professor. Many more to come. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Hora. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.